0: Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by IcarusFC.com and Roughneck Scarves. This is episode number 302. With that number, we'll give a shout out to a game from September 2003. That was match number 302 in the history of the U.S. Women's National Team. And it was the first and only match in the team's history to feature three PK goals, all by the Americans. They defeated Mexico 5-0 in their final warm-up game before the 2003 Women's World Cup. And goals number 3, 4, and 5 were converted from the spot by Brandy Chastain, Mia Hamm, and Allie Wagner, respectively. All right. So two chats today. First with Charles Olney, who writes for Backline Soccer, also hosts a Dash podcast called Actually the Dash. Uh, You can follow him at Dash Actually on Twitter. Uh, We had a great chat about uh, the Dash's first two games, especially their, their last game, their win against Orlando in the fall series and what's ahead for the club. And then I spoke with Chris Hockman, one of my favorite Aussies, uh, to talk about Tony Gustafson being named head coach for the Matildas. Uh, Tony was Jill Ellis's assistant for the last five or so years uh, for the US Women. He also coached. Uh, Europe, in, well rather in Europe for Toriso and in Sweden back when Marta played for that club. So we talked about what his hiring means for the Matildas and, and what their near future looks like with uh, question marks on on the W League season and you know the next time they can schedule a fixture. And of course, there's a Gen Spplaer segment in between the two chats. so enjoy. All right, Jen Cooper, The Keeper, here with Charles Only from Actually The Dash. And that's no longer a social media phrase. That's actually, actually, actually a Houston Dash podcast. Charles, you got to tell me first, uh, since you're based in Brownsville, Texas, which is like as far south as you can go and still be in Texas, um, what led you to start The Dash podcast?
1: Really, it's just looking around and seeing some of the great podcasts that other teams were producing or other, you know, fans of other teams were, were producing. So uh, particularly, you know, Sandra and Claire in Chicago, the folks out in Portland and just kind of wishing that there was something regular, uh, you know, where people could talk about Dash and, and organize around the team. So I'm not l- quite local, <laughs> um, but, you know, <laughs> local enough. I usually am able to make it to, you know, three or four games a year. Um not this year, obviously, but normal years, and figured that that was you know good enough to, to qualify me in in twenty twenty. Anyone can start a podcast, so that you know just kind of seemed like a, a void that needed to be filled. So, I really hope that we get to the place where there's you know one or more podcasts for every team out there, so fans have a chance to you know check in and have a real community to build around. Because I think that's been really critical for you know Chicago, Utah, Portland, places like that. So it's been a nice year. We've seen a bunch of new folks start. It's been fantastic.
2: Well,
0: and I'm so glad you guys started that podcast because because of all the work that I do and doing this, that's something I haven't been able to do, especially since I'm doing the the official Dynamo Dash podcast. So when I saw that, I'm like, "Good, somebody's doing that! Yay!" <laughs> you know, it's like like you said, other other markets have that, and you need something that's not the official club podcast, but the you know fan slash media driven. Um, podcast. And of course, you have co-host Haley Snyder, who is local. Anybody else who's a regular on that one?
1: Right now it's just the two of us although anyone out there listening uh we are kind of looking to uh you know get more folks involved just uh both of us are extremely busy uh so you know our ability to get shows out is a little bit uh slower than we might like so if there are other folks that we could kind of get involved and do a little bit of rotation that would be really fantastic and that's actually how haley got involved is i just i did the first i think two episodes just myself talking to a microphone and uh send out an invite and said if you're enjoying this you know kind of get involved and. And she she did. And it's been fantastic. I, you know, it's improved the show by five times by being able to have her on and bring her ideas and her perspective and, you know, talk to players and do interviews and stuff. So it's been great. We'd love to have more folks involved.
0: Well, tell me tell me some Dash thoughts. I mean, we had, of course, an exciting Challenge Cup this summer, but more recently, back to back games where the dash has scored three goals Uh, first win without Rachel Daly in the lineup in, in four years. And of course scoring three goals at North Carolina, that doesn't happen very often, but not coming away with a win. Uh, And of course they host North Carolina this weekend in, in the return leg as, as we can call it of the fall series. So thoughts on the dash so far in, in this four game format, Southeast pod, whichever pod we're in South pod, it kind of sounds like a fork. Yeah, uh, it's weird.
1: <laughs> I've been really impressed. I think, um, you know, a lot of folks sort of said after the, the Challenge Cup, you know, uh, just how good is this team? They were definitely impressive in the tournament, but would they be able to, to sustain it? And was this a team we should seriously be thinking about as a regular playoff, you know, team going into 2021? And I think they've shown that they are. I think that this team... Really has uh, locked in those improvements that they made coming into this year because they, I think, outplayed North Carolina. It's not full peak North Carolina, but you know they're still a very good team. And I think the Dash just outplayed them. You know, didn't come away with the win. I think playing down a player for for the last forty or so minutes, uh, you know, made that a little bit tougher. But particularly in the first half, they just ran North Carolina off the pitch. So that's really impressive. I don't think I've seen. Um, Probably in two or three years, I don't think anyone's played that well against North Carolina. So it was really fantastic to see. And then uh, just most recently against Orlando, we saw just another really fantastic performance. So pretty much everyone is basically the same team. You know, that's an advantage that the Dash have right now is that just about everyone is back other than than Rachel over in England. Uh, So I think that continuity has been really helpful. But They're not really playing the same way. And I think that's the most impressive thing is that they've held possession really well. They've been really high percentage passing Um, during the Challenge Cup. They were completing, you know, under 50% of their passes for long stretches in, in games. And that's not at all what they've been doing since coming back. So I think that shows, you know, growth and development on top of what they already had.
0: That really stood out to me last Saturday when I, you know, I'm looking at the stats while while we're at the end of the game about to do a little stat recap. And I'm like, wow, for the first time this year, Dash had more of the possession, where, you know, as as you mentioned, and as we saw in the challenge cup, they were seemed like they were happy not to have possession, right? So I was like, this is very different, right? Um, and also to see uh, I mean it's it's a little bit of a throwaway stat you know to say hey they haven't won with without Rachel in the lineup in 4 years because 2017 2018 she played all but one game but it really speaks to last year where the stretch that Rachel missed for the world cup the dash weren't able to win that's really the most important part of that stat not the 4 year thing but last year they couldn't win without her um so to get that win um, and at home back in front of the fans for the first time in a year, uh, you know, it just felt so significant, like another uh, another milestone for a club that we've seen struggle for most of its existence. You know, that trophy for this summer, huge for the club, you know, those back-to-back games with three goals, nailing down a home win like that, a dominating performance without the person who is by far the best player shows that it's like, okay, it's not just the Rachel Daly show that it's like James Clarkson is building a club. Right. Now obviously if Rachel's back, you slaughter into that lineup, right? <laughs> but but to have have depth like that, much like the way we've referred to North Carolina over the years, we're like, sure, they're missing Lynn Williams, but they've got Crystal Dunn, Sam Mewis, Denise O'Sullivan, Dabinia, right? So it's like look, looking towards that in the long run, that, okay, it's not just Rachel Daly that you have to worry about, but Shea Groom and Veronica Latska. And oh, damn, Sophie Schmidt. tell me tell me your thoughts on on sophie schmidt i mean both games she she scored after dash had gone down a player against north carolina that was like wow um and then she had the assist on the first goal against orlando and then that ice in her veins finish from the penalty spot the game winner
1: I think she's been really fantastic, and she was really important last year as a player who kind of brought some calmness and some, you know, veteran presence. Someone who is able to to pick their her eyes up and and scan the field in a way that They you know didn't necessarily have in that kind of uh, holding midfield role before, um, but I think it's been a, a next level this year, and that's really encouraging to me. Just because you know I watch a lot of Canada, <laughs> I think I've watched just about every Canada game <laughs> of the last you know three or four years, and I, nice. I don't think she's been I don't think she's been great with Canada, and so I was I was you know a, a little bit down on what she might be able to do. And some players when they get to you know their late twenties, early thirties, is just there's a little bit of decline, and that's just how it goes. But I think it's more about just for whatever reason, you know, she wasn't quite reaching up to her potential with Canada, but she has been absolutely critical for the dash and, you know, kind of the the center of the whole attack in a lot of ways. Um, and I think it's really important, particularly in a game like we just saw where the dash actually had a lot of possession, where there was a lot more room on the field that she maybe had to cover because, you know, the other five forward players were were getting more into the attack and were regularly getting, you know, um, high up the field and her ability to continue to sort of occupy space and, and see passing lanes and close them down, uh, is just really essential. And, um, you know, it, I don't think we could speak highly enough about the work that she's been doing.
0: Yeah. So crucial. Um, it's such, such an important part, you know, the squad, especially I think with that, with the absence of, of Rachel Daly, that she can kind of step into that leadership role, um, obviously quieter in the way that she does it, but just as important. Um, and of course, I was really excited to see Latsko get a goal at North Carolina, Nichelle Prince get the opening goal versus Orlando, both of them basically scoring for the first time since their injuries from twenty nineteen. You know, I felt like Nichelle had been knocking on the door for most of the challenge cup, right? She, you know, nothing on the yeah. on the score sheet in terms of goals or assists, but, you know she was causing a lot of havoc up top. Um, Latsko didn't see as many starts, but you know she did have an assist, and we saw a lot of um, a lot of good performances from her. So I was happy to see both of those players, you know, get rewarded, get on the spreadsheet, and it just it broadens the the options for for the dash attack.
1: Yeah, and and one so talking to to James after the the three one you know victory over Orlando. I, I kind of asked a question of, you know, were you, you know, obviously happy to score three goals, but actually, you know, y'all missed quite a few chances. It could have been more. Is yeah. that, <laughs> is, is that something that, you know, worries you at all? And he said, actually, yeah, it really does because we feel like we should be playing really to the peak of our ability. And actually, even though we won by two clean goals today, we don't think we put in our best performance and, you know, to have the dash thinking that way, I think is a real sign of of where they at. Which is, they have all these wonderful attacking players, and they now feel confident. They feel um, certain. They feel lethal. And so, I think it is really critical that uh, you know, folks have started really being able to score goals. Someone like Nichelle Prince, who. I think was maybe the Dash's best player at the Challenge Cup after she, you know, came back um dealing with her father's death and everything, but didn't actually score a goal, but was just wonderful going through the the knockout rounds to see her get that goal and a really, a really good goal as well. Um, I think just it continues to bolster and make everyone feel, you know, really good about where they're at. And, you know, confidence, it's you can't you know, come to it, you know, um, falsely, like you earn it and you really have to get there. And I think the Dash now feel like they really are, you know, the the conquering team that they sort of showed themselves to be over the summer. And I think they still have that kind of underdog mentality, but um, in a really productive and healthy way. And so, yeah, Nichelle and, and Latsko and, and Groom and Schmidt and just everyone being contributing to the attack, uh, I think makes it really hard to play them because you can't just isolate, you know, one player and focus your attention. It's you focus on one person, someone else is going to beat you.
0: And I think, you know, they felt coming into this that they still had something to prove, you know, they wanted to show people that the Challenge Cup wasn't a fluke, you know, and and of course like we already mentioned, you know, playing this this series without Rachel, right? And what what I love about this group of three teams in the fall series is these teams didn't play in the Challenge Cup, yeah, you know, of course, Orlando, Orlando didn't get to be in the Challenge Cup, and and Houston and North Carolina, you know, didn't have a chance to face off. So I love that it. it provided like kind of fresh matchups. And to your point about the number of shots, the Dash took—they had twenty-seven on the night. And when I saw that number, I was like, "What?" Like I didn't even realize it, it was that high. And, and a friend might ask, like, "Hey, is that the most the Dash have ever had?" I said. It's got to be close. I'm pretty sure it's not just because my gut tells me that from the Carly Lloyd era, she, you know, she shoots like it's going out of style. Um, and, and I was right. There were two games from the Carly Lloyd era that had more than 27 shots. Um, granted, not shots on target, but shots. But it's like, that's a lot. You know, um, and, and I'm glad you asked that question of James and that he said, yeah, we, we do have to work on our finish and you can't squander those chances, especially when you know that in most games you're not going to get nearly as many. Um, and then, of course, we have to give a shout out to Ashlyn Harris, who shut down a lot of the amazing shots on target. <laughs> you know, um, she, she certainly had herself a game. Um, but I loved the matchup, even without Orlando bringing Sidney LaRue... Kristen Edmonds, like the fight that's in Orlando, because of a lot of players that are getting this opportunity that they normally wouldn't have. Right, you've got more Orlando players on loan than anywhere else. You know, like Marissa Vigiano, Jordan Listro, Carrie Lawrence, you know, Courtney Peterson. I'm loving seeing what they're what they're bringing to the table.
1: One of the cool things about the fall series is. It's sort of low stress and that we all know these games don't really matter but everyone is bringing sort of what it's important for them to bring. And so for the dash, as you say, like, it's partly about, you know, they want to prove that they're for real for North Carolina. They want to show that, you know, they're missing some of their, their top line stars, but they want to prove that they can play in a different way. They're playing a different system and they want to show, you know, swap anyone out. They're still the courage. And then for Orlando, (laughs) right? Like this is a lot of players who otherwise wouldn't get a chance. And it's been wonderful to see them, you know, some of those names, you mentioned, um, you know, they have a couple of these Jamaican players that I absolutely love, and I've been really enjoying watching them. And it's just cool that it's it's fine that each of these teams is kind of coming at it with something else going on. Um, but you know, to see Orlando and or North Carolina draw uh, was wonderful. Oh, that was, was amazing! Just,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: You know, that's it was Orlando's first game in a year basically, and they played you know maybe the best team in the world and we're able to to hold them to a draw. And I think it's just wonderful. It's just, uh, it's been a nice way to give fans a chance to watch some games and to kind of let everyone, you know, let loose just a little bit. I don't think anyone is as stressed about these games as they were about the Challenge Cup, but they all do have things to prove and they really want to show what they've got. And so that kind of medium level of pressure has just generated a lot of really fun games and, uh, has let everyone kind of appreciate the soccer for what it is and not um stress too much about you know what does it mean for the playoffs or things like that. Um, it's been great, and so this plus the challenge cup i just i hope the league finds ways to include games outside of just the normal schedule going forward, whether that be a cup or a little mini tournament or something. I think it just it brings a different energy, and I've really, really enjoyed it
0: well, and I like that now for the fall series, teams get to play half their games at home, right? So they're back in their home fields. They're back on grass for the most part. Um, you know, we're not having kicks that are 10 a.m., 8 p.m. mountain time, right? It, it's kind of returning to more a more normal schedule. Teams aren't even playing every week because you've got the three groups of three, right? So three teams are off every, every weekend. So you're not putting any team under the stress of, we just played a game three days ago, right? Um, you know no one's flying cross country you know all, all of that, um but coming back to the dash uh you know what do you think's going to happen this Sunday? They host North Carolina. This will be the third or four games um for both of the teams in in the fall series.
1: I think it's going to be a pretty eventful game. um I hesitate to really make a prediction. I mean, I guess I would just sort of say when you're not sure, I guess that means it's a draw, but i you know I kind of feel like <laughs> I kind of feel like Houston. Are going to come into this really, really amped, and I think they have been playing really well. And I think North Carolina, for all that they really are committed to, you know, extracting every little bit of water from that rock that they're squeezing, um, they also do have priorities that are not necessarily just winning. Like, like I said, they are, you know, trying to play a different system and, and integrate some new players in some slightly different ways. And I kind of have a lot of faith that the Dash know what it is that they're trying to do right now. And so I, I really like their odds. I guess is is all I'll say. I w- it would not all surprise me if you know North Carolina can beat anyone six <laughs> nothing on their day. So you know you don't want to get too confident here. But I really like the Dash's chances. I think um, they're they have a system, they have a style, which they're adapting. Um, you know to play in slightly different ways. But I think everyone pretty much knows what they're doing. Um, so I think you know I, I think it'll be a great game. I'm really looking forward to watching it for sure.
0: When I spoke to Christine Naren today for the the Houston Dash podcast, one of the things she mentioned was that James had told them to think of the fall series similar to Champions League, uh, where that you have a home leg and an away leg against opponents, right? Like in the group stage of of, of the Champions League. And, And I thought that was such a brilliant analogy. And so she was thinking about how, you know, okay, we got, you know, we got the win against Orlando. When we go to Orlando, you know, we've got something to to fight for. You know, like thinking of that as a series and thinking of North Carolina as as a series. Also, North Carolina-Houston, that was the first team of the series, first game of the series for both teams. Um, and, and I think we saw any time it was a, a team's first game, right, like a, a little unsure of themselves or some new players in there or, you know, Hey, they haven't played a competitive match since July, you know, they're shaking off some rust and also hard to scout, right? Like I think, you know, poor North Carolina had to face Orlando first, right. And no one's seen Orlando play in a year. (laughs) Um, and it's, and it's players that they'd, about half players that they didn't have before, right? But now every team's played at least two, I think. I guess Rain has just played one, but like, you know, so like, okay, at least there's kind of something to scout. And now that you're, we're getting into the second half of the fall series where you've got the return legs, right? That you've got that added drama of, well, last time this happened, but this time we're going to focus on this. And it's not like a regular season where, maybe your return leg is is close on the schedule and maybe it's four months later, right? And maybe a whole swath of international players is missing the next time you meet up. This is like almost the exact same rosters, right? So, and, and in a short period of time. So it really, it really does work well with the champions league analogy.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, a 4 3 loss in the away, you know, leg of a Champions League, that's not a bad place to be, actually. <laughs> Get the away goals. <laughs> have to, well, you should uh, talk with North Carolina and convince them that this really is the way we should uh, think about this just to make sure everyone's playing at the same deck. I think that's a lot of fun.
0: And have you noticed the tiebreakers for the Verizon Community Shield standings? I think it's really interesting that. First tiebreaker is your your normal goal differential, the way it should be. Um, then goal scored. Then shutouts. I don't think there's ever been tiebreaker standings before really? that have most shutouts. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, and, and it's an awkward setup. I mean, similar to Challenge Cup being an awkward setup for the first round. But in the first round, at least you had, you played four games, but you had four different opponents, right? Here, you're playing four games, but you only have two opponents, Um and so I guess that was a way to kind of create a tiebreaker that was, you know, regardless of your opponent who you played, like it's this other, just other stat core, category. So it's goal differential, goals for, number of shutouts, then it's, um, you know, who has the least amount of. What yellow red card points, however you want to describe them, fair play points, yeah. um, and then a- then after that, if it's still tied, there's no coin toss. I'm happy to say. Then it would just be if you're tied for one of the Verizon prizes, then you the teams just split that prize to give to whoever who their community partners are, you know. And that there's there's actually an award for first, second, or third. So if you got third, you're still giving ten thousand dollars to your community
1: partner, which is really cool. Well, <laughs> I was gonna say that the uh... Yeah, I was going to say that the 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 fair play points might not reflect well for Houston given the Alicia Chapman send <laughs> off, but I think I think Orlando had I don't know four or five yellow cards that last game, so maybe that'll they maybe that balance itself out. Yeah.
0: Though, though I'm not sure it'll, it'll even get to that tiebreaker. I mean, and, and what's not, interesting but... with with how you know only only six of the nine teams play each weekend and the first weekend was just one game, you know, so it's been a really uneven pattern of, of, of games. So you can look at the standings right now and it looks like Chicago and North Carolina are on top, but well, Chicago's played three of their four games. Well Rain's only played one. Right. So yeah, it, it, it'll be, Similar to those last two days of the first round of the Challenge Cup, <laughs> where we're all talking about, oh, how are the standings going to fall out? Even though at the same time we're like, well, it doesn't mean that much because everybody makes the quarterfinals, right? But at the same time, none of the none of these teams are happy with a with a tie or a loss, right? Like everybody's got got something to play for. In addition to, hey, we're awarding something, you know, to our community partner, but. Yeah, I I'm, I'm really intrigued to see how all that plays out. Well, last question for you um Charles looking forward into 2021 for the Houston Dash. What do you, what do you expect out of the Houston Dash or what do you think they need to perhaps add to their roster?
1: I think the biggest uh hole such as it is is they're kind of wasting Haley Hansen out at right back, uh, which is a little strange to say because she's actually been absolutely fantastic in the role. Um, but I think she really fits better as a, you know, holding or, or sort of an eight in, in the midfield. And it is, as we, you know, Christine Nairn did really quite well <laughs> at left back filling in for Alicia Chapman uh, against Orlando. But I'd, I don't think she or the team really see that as the, the long-term solution there. So, you know, kind right. of some depth in those sorts of roles. Um, But yeah, for the first time that I can ever remember, and I think probably for the first time ever, Houston doesn't really have any serious weaknesses. They have quality players at every position. They have some pretty good depth in the attack and, you know, in central defense, even, you know, saw Ali Price come in um, because Megan Oyster uh, is out with her rib injury still. And, you know, everyone's kind of understands the role in the system. So I, you know, there's a lot of great teams in the league and. We'll have to see what happens with expansion and maybe that will poke holes in lots of rosters that we don't quite anticipate yet. But I think Houston absolutely looks like they're in that group of teams at the top two, three, four uh, who should be kind of planning to make the playoffs next year, which, you know, they've never made the playoffs. So it seems a little bit strange to to call them a a favorite for that. But, uh, you know, I I don't see anyone else other than North Carolina, who I think clearly looks like they're going to be better going into 2021. So it's a, it's pretty cool time to be, you know, supporting Houston.
0: Well, and I'll throw you one more question just because you and I have talked about this kind of thing before where it's like, Hey, maybe they should try X format or why don't they try this going into the expansion draft and, and also the, the college draft, how do you decide? Well, one um, order You know, like, what what standings do you use or what standings do you mesh together to decide draft order? And for protecting players in the expansion draft, historically, the two expansion drafts we've had have been, if you were a playoff team, you could protect nine players. If you weren't, you could protect 10. Assuming you're still going with a system like that, well, how do you decide who the playoff teams were?
1: (laughs) Uh, I don't envy them, the decisions about that, honestly. Um, I I guess the sort of fairest way you could come up with would be to just treat the results of the Challenge Cup as the only results that we have and kind of go with that. To be honest, I would almost say just pretend 2020 results don't matter and use the whole 2019 results again, but that also kind of stacks the, the theoretical benefits that everyone got. Um, from this last draft so yeah i don't really know what 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 makes the most sense for that process i almost wonder if maybe this is going a little bit too you know weirdo game theory but we have access to you know teams have access to you know uh, extra money now in the process i almost wonder if you could ask teams to bid on how much they're interested (laughs) in certain kinds of roles and then teams who don't want to you know they could Get an infusion of cash in exchange for being at the bottom of the process. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I like that idea. I like where you're going with that. Um, but I, but I will, I will leave you with a homework assignment of coming up with some kind of interesting calculus of how you would blend 2019 Challenge Cup and Fall Series final standings to make a draft order for 2021. I love. I mean, I know you're not. I know you're not a math professor, but you are a professor, so.
1: I I do love staring at poorly designed spreadsheets. So I will definitely take that on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love it. Well, Charles, thank you for taking the time to talk about the Houston Dash and keep up the good work with Actually the Dash podcast. And where can my listeners listen to your podcast?
1: Uh, It's on all your favorite podcast apps, you know, iTunes, Spotify, all those kinds of things. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter at Dash Actually. Uh, or,
0: you know. <laughs> oh, Dash, actually, I like that. <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much, and Dash on.
1: Yeah, Dash on. Thanks for having me on. Always great to talk.
0: Time for a little gin splaining. Today's topic, the women's Euro, since there were a few Euro qualifiers played last month and more are coming up this month. The next women's championship tournament for Europe was originally set for summer 2021, but due to the postponement of the 2020 Olympics, the next women's Euro has been pushed back to summer 2022. So the official name is the UEFA Women's Championship, but it's generally referred to as the Euro. UEFA, or UEFA, stands for Union of European Football Associations. So this tournament is strictly for European national teams. And just like for the Women's World Cup, UEFA holds many rounds of qualifying, or rather many qualifying games, to determine which teams qualify for the final event. The tournament was first held in 1984, then again in 1987. And then through 1997, the Euro was held every other year. And at that point, they decided to adopt the current every four years format uh, since you had the Olympics launched in 1996. So the Euro is played the year after the Olympics. So basically the women's cycle is World Cup, you know, 2015, Olympics, 2016, Euro 2017. Um, And of course we're gonna be a little off cycle with the 2020 Olympics being pushed back a year. So Euro being pushed back a year and then it'll run right into Women's World Cup being in 2023. The first six editions of the tournament featured just four teams each. But as women's soccer grew, Of course, the tournament grew to eight teams in 1997, to 12 in 2009, and eventually to 16, starting with the 2017 edition. Next Euro will be held in England. And yeah, you can travel, buy tickets, kind of the same thing as the Women's World Cup. And since England is the host, the Lionesses do not have to go through qualifying. But all other European nations do. So there are 47 teams competing for the 15 spots alongside England. And I'm sure many of you are aware that there are a lot of European NDSL players who are currently on loan, either in England, Scotland, Iceland, Sweden, France, etc. Mostly to be closer to their national teams for the fall qualifiers and of course to avoid having to go through quarantine if they fly in uh, from the US. For more about qualifying groups and the results for 2021 qualifying, just Google Women's Euro 2017. Um, lots you can find online, uefa.com, has a lot of great history and no one should be surprised that Germany has mostly dominated uh, the Euro over the years. though Netherlands, they won their first ever title by taking the tournament in 2017. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Chris Hawkman, Aussie extraordinaire, living in the U.S. but still following the Matildas very closely. So, Chris, big news this week. I and I actually stayed up till four a.m. Houston time to to see the live announcement. The Matildas have a new coach.
2: They do. They do. Tony Gustafson. So, you know, I think it's um, I think it's a bit of a left field choice. Honestly, I don't think a lot of people in Australia, at least, saw it coming until. Like when they announced that they were going to make an announcement, um, which led to a lot of jokes. Um, a few folks in FFA media posted a mock, put up a screen with the mock, welcome Jurgen, and then a photo, um, <laughs> pretending it was going to be Jurgen Quinton, not Jurgen Jurgen Jürgen So, you know. Either, either way it
0: works. Either way that it would works.
2: Have been, yeah, I mean, either of those would have been a left of choice. And I think that. I think Queensland would have been a lot more controversial than clock. Um, but yeah, it was, I think a lot of people had a lot of fun with it. Um, and then of course, I think uh, one of the media folks in uh, Australia was joking that Office, Microsoft Office 365 went down right when they made the announcement. So no one could write about it, which, uh, which was pretty hilarious. But yeah, I Dustin, which is, I think... Um, yeah, a lot of people, I think, anywhere don't know much about Tony. But I think especially in Australia, people don't really know who he is. Um, and it was certainly one that I don't think – he certainly wasn't showing up on. You know, whenever a big international coach changes, that everybody puts out these, here are the five coaches that could replace – so and so, and and I don't think and you, you, me with on the, any you of stick those with the you stick with the
0: big names that are that that are previous head coaches, right? But at some right. point, someone has to be head coach for the first time.
2: Yeah, you got to give. He's got to get his chance at some point, and it's not like he doesn't have head coaching experience. Period. You know, he right. um, went to the went to the Women's Champions League final in 2014. Um, he's now coaching Hammerby, um, the men's team in. Um, over there in Sweden. So it's not like he's completely without head coaching experience, but at the international level, yeah, his only experience internationally is uh, being an assistant in the United States.
0: But Hey, you can say you were part of a program that won back-to-back women's world cups. You know, you've worked with, you know, golden ball winners, golden boot winners in the most competitive women's program in the world so i would think that that would be you know great for australia but also for him to be like okay now i get to take all this experience but actually get to be in charge
2: I think it's pretty great that he gets to do that at a like more so doing it at such a big program like there has never been a better time to be the head coach of the tilters than right now um yes. you're coaching you're coaching a Matildas that is arguably peaking to be the best they've ever been um, with the quality they have in that roster, and you're hosting the World Cup in three years. Well, I guess yeah. Two and a half. Um, yeah, So you get to h- coach the host, um, along with New Zealand. Um, you get to coach the host nation for the World Cup um, at probably the best time they're ever going to – like the strongest that team's ever been. Um, it's a pretty great job. And to have that be your first national team job is is astounding. But I think a lot of the other names that were being considered, it, you know, um, they weren't all experienced internationally. A lot of them had a really great experience domestically, but not so much with national teams. So going with a manager that didn't have international experience, I don't think was a huge shock. Just the one that they went with, uh, was surprising because I think a lot of people thought it was going to be Joe. And so Joe Montevero over at, over at Arsenal, um, I think a lot of people ah. thought that was who it was going to be um, because, well, he's Australian. Um, and so that kind of made sense a lot. It made sense to me. I would have enjoyed seeing Joe make that jump. But at the same time, um, we've got to talk about how Tony's no doubt the cheapest person that was on the list. Um, and that's a factor, you know, in, yeah. in 2020, when you don't, you don't have the money coming in that you used to have. Um, yeah. Getting someone who's willing to do the job and is capable, but also isn't going to cost you an arm and a leg is a factor. Um, and Tony met that requirement. You know, he's, he's got a huge, pen. he's got a huge CV. He comes very highly recommended, um, especially from the U S side, U S soccer and the players, I think highly recommend him um, despite how much uh, one of the coaches he worked under came not recommended at all um, because Jill Ellis's name came up for the job and basically everybody, anybody talked to about, oh, should the Matilda hire Jill Ellis? said, dear God, no. Um, so Tony didn't have that. There was no, he didn't seem to be, Tainted maybe a little harsh to Jules, but he didn't seem to be tainted by that brush. Um, he got all the positives of being in that team without the negative connotations of, of Jules' reign.
0: And that's the the bonus of being the assistant, right? Anything bad, um, a, a, any criticism is going to fall on, on the head coach, right? Because. Uh, it's not like you ever see a head coach go, oh, that wasn't me. That was my assistant. I let him or her, you know, do all, the, right. do all those and things.
2: I, but, I've never seen any of the players. You know, we, we hear a lot from the players that played under Jill in the U.S. Women's National Team. Um, criticize Jill. And I've never heard those same criticisms about anyone else on the staff. Um which is I, I, whether you read anything into that or not, I don't know. Um, you just played Jill because she was the head coach or was it just Jill and actually the rest of the coaching staff were great and that's what made a successful team um, with the other staff behind Jill. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. We're going to find out though. Uh, with Tony. Yeah. It's a heck of a job.
0: Well, and, and I don't think any really you know, any consideration of Tony should come with what we have to talk about Jill too, because, you know, he does, he does have a fair amount of coaching experience outside of his time as uh, the U.S. assistant coach, namely being the coach of, Tyresö, or however you say it in Swedish, the former club that did go all the way to the Champions League final in 2014 when he was coaching Marta, Kristen Press, Megan Klingenberg, Whitney Engen, you know, it, it's like that. And that, I think they were, I think they were down to zero at half and came back to score three goals in the second half, still lost 4-3. But like, you know, he's, he's seen lots of Different kinds of women's soccer, and not not just women's soccer, um, and has been through the grind of the World Cup again, not as head coach, but he's not coming into it raw, right? Um, and I think just probably all the scouting that. You know, the US must have done since he's been on board as an assistant is, I would think, the most valuable part (laughs) of anybody's CV as they're looking to be head coach of a major national team, right? Like, I I, I think too on the NWSL side that Christy Hawley, having been a scout for the US women during 2019, it's like that's got to give a big boost, big boost to. To how you look as, as a head coach, because suddenly you you've been you've been watching the game and connecting the game in a way that that most people don't get to.
2: Yeah, I think he's he's got these experiences that I think it's easy to assume he doesn't have because he hasn't had a big international job. Like I said, he went to the Champions League final, um, and then I'm just re looking at the 2014 results and everything. I mean, beat PSG on the way, uh, Fortuna. Uh, from Denmark, I'm not even going to try and pronounce the second part of that name, um, uh-huh. Norgvac and Birmingham. Um, you know, Birmingham at that time were pretty peak of their powers um, and knocked them out in the semi without conceding a goal. They only conceded, in the knockout stages, they only conceded three goals and one of those goals was in an 8-1 win in Austria. So, you know, they it's not quite the Wolfsburg 13-0, 14-0 of uh of the Estonian team Panu, but it's you know it's an incredible result, and he he took a team that nobody really saw, um, reaching the final to the final. You know they they'd never been to the Champions League before, and then all of a sudden they they were in the final um, with yeah I mean a phenomenal squad that they had as well. But um, he managed that squad there, and yes, uh, the end of that didn't pan out, and maybe the club was a little too uh, trying to think of the right way to wear this. They, they probably spent a lot of, uh, a bit too much money uh, achieving what they did in 2014 because almost immediately afterwards they ceased to exist. Um, but, you know, that's not really on the, on the coach. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. that's the, not the something else not being sustainable. Um, well, let's, let's talk
0: about, let's talk about um, what, how he fits in in the history of uh, Australian women's national team coaches. I mean, his hiring, what does that signal to you as what the FFA is doing?
2: Yeah, I think it's really fascinating because he's really the first head coach I feel like Australia's ever had that, and this is going to sound dumb because obviously Samani is not Australian, but comes to it without a background in Australia. You know, Tom Samani Yes, Scottish, but if you think of Australian women's soccer, you think of Tom um, you know, he, he made the W League what it is. Um, he built this program essentially from the ground up. You know, It was just horribly funded when Tom Somani's first stint started. Um, so to have a team that – to have an appointment like this where there isn't much of a connection to Australia – Let alone Australian women's football is um, is pretty fascinating. It's a really exciting change, Um, and maybe it's one that's needed. You know, there was a lot of controversy with the sacking of Stadic, Milicic. It didn't feel like he took the team on, Um, which. But you know, what what are you supposed to do when you take over the team in those circumstances and with such short time? To uh to push the team forward, like what are you supposed to do? Um, so Milicic was kind of on a hiding hiding to nothing. Um, it feels like this is a new, like this is always going to be the start of a new era for the Matildas with hosting the World Cup. Um, this is always going to be the Matildas' golden age um, moment. But I think signing a guy like Tony really signals that there's going to be a completely different thinking. To what this team is—that's not this. I don't want to say stuck in Australia, but looking further afield and being more diverse um, with how this team plays and taking the taking advantage of women's football being a much more global thing than it was when you know Tom took over the team for his first stint, where it was really Northern Europe, North America, and that was it. Um, and so now we have it where there are the competitive teams all over the world. Um, it's much more competitive than it used to be. And, um, and we're getting the benefit of having somebody that's worked, um, outside of Asia, which outside of Asia, outside of Oceania, which we haven't really had before. Uh, and I think that is a good thing for the team as the team also goes out and gets those experiences. You know, we haven't had many There haven't been many Matildas in the past playing their football outside of Australia. And now you look at the Matilda squad and every single player that was named in the last squad played, currently plays outside of Australia. There isn't a single player that is playing exclusively in the W League now. that's a big change and bringing in a guy that is familiar with that kind of thing, I think is, is a good thing that can take the team to the next level Um, alongside all these things that all this development we're seeing the players make by playing in the big leagues and playing outside of the W league. Um, You know, most notably you think of Sam Kerr and that big money move to Chelsea, but there's more than that. You know, Lydia Williams playing in Arsenal with Steph Catley, um, you know, you've got Kaya Simon over at PSV. Um, so there's a a lot of things going on. Amy Luik is at uh, Sevilla. So you've got this strong um, mix of soccer culture happening. I think Tony's going to add to that. I think that can only be a good thing for the prospect of uh, of World Cup because there's no doubt in, um, in Australia what the goal is for 2023, and that's to win it. Um, I think Australians will be pretty disappointed if the Matildas don't win the 2023 World Cup, which I know sounds ridiculous, coming coming from a country that's only ever won one knockout game um, in the tournament. But that's the level of expectation that has been created in Australia in the last couple of tournaments. I think Australia came into the last World Cup with a reasonable expectation of contending for the tournament. Um, then everything happened and they kind of put themselves on the back foot. Um, but you know, they, they blew it and they really had a chance. Then I think Australia expects, um, and while yeah, would, is winning the tournament necessarily a realistic goal for a team that's only ever won one knockout game in the tournament before? Yeah, probably not. Um, it probably shouldn't be the be all and end all. If you, if you don't win the world cup, you shouldn't be, um, making wholesale changes because, well, you've never gotten that close before anyway. Um, but you're hosting the tournament. Um, I don't think there are many teams that are going to be used to playing in Australia with all the travel that's going to be involved in that tournament. Yes. Um, especially because you add New Zealand to it, which makes the travel even longer. Um, than Australia, um, yeah. The United States travels a lot. Um,
0: they survived Canada twenty fifteen, where that yeah, was, I think right. that, that was the furthest east west Women's World Cup there that there had ever been.
2: <laughs> and then, but then Australia, you're going to be playing games in Perth and potentially Perth and New Zealand, um, which is the longest. We joke in Australia in the men's league that we call it the distance derby between Perth and Wellington. Uh, because they're the two furthest away teams at the top flight in the world. Um, yeah. So it, it's a lot and it's going to be a lot of travel regardless. And I think that helps teams like Australia and the United States and Canada who are used to making that kind of travel. Um, but even in the United States, you have big cities in the middle. Um, as much as the, the NWSL doesn't have a lot of cities in that space right now, Um there are cities in the middle. So when you host a tournament like a World Cup or the qualifiers, there's not a lot of travel involved in those tournaments because they're so, because you can go to the cities in the middle. In Australia, it's Adelaide and that's it. Everything else is on the coast. So right. you're not really going to, if you are playing in Adelaide or Perth, yeah, it's going to be a rough tournament for you because at some point you're going to have to travel across the whole country. Um, and that's going to be difficult. Um, I think Australians especially are used to this because to go anywhere from Australia, it's a long flight. Um, And the, the advantage that Australia has of Asian qualifying um, where it's always a long flight, no matter where they play it, unless they play it in Australia is, um, is a big deal. So there's advantages there. I think um, Tony's going to bring this, yeah, this sort of a cosmopolitan feel to the Matildas that, it really feels like it's happening now. Like it feels like the Matildas are a global side now rather than this group of people, like rather than just being a W League All-Star team, They really do feel like a global, we have the best team we can make of every Australian playing in the world, as opposed to the W League All-Stars, which is how they felt probably the last time, well, not the last time they came to Australia, but when they came to Australia before they won the tournament of the Nations in that first The trip under Heristein uh, in that brief period um, which is then the risk you have with Tony does Tony become another Heristein Um, you know they went outside they found Heristein and it just didn't work at all Um, Mm -hmm. we'll see that's the uh, that's challenge I don't think anyone could be as poorly liked as uh, Heristein was she uh, (laughs) she did not do well with that team they did not like her um there's a lot of player power in Australia, especially now. I think now the player power in Australia is going to If they don't like him, it's going to become real apparent that they don't like him and he won't last the Olympics.
0: Well, especially um, considering what, what happened right before the Women's World Cup where mm-hmm. you know, um, the coaches unceremoniously dumped, what, five, six months before the World Cup starts, apparently because of some player feedback. But all the players were like, what?
2: Like, yeah, <laughs> uh, we didn't yeah, submit any was, feedback about him, so... It was fascinating, and it, it felt like... Yeah, I mean, we don't need to relitigate it, because I think everybody knows. Right. If you're listening to this, you're probably up with it, but... Or you, the, can, Google, um, you can
0: Google it, you can we don't Google need to explain it. Alan Stadich, yeah.
2: but, you know, it, it felt... And I was in Australia when that all happened. I remember we spoke, and we joked about how everything goes down when I go back, um, but I um, I remember... It felt – and the vibe in Australia was certainly there was a board member with a bone to pick um, against Alan Stadjic for whatever reason. Um, so, you know, but it's – um, yeah, it's interesting. There's, there's a chance that it could blow up. I'm confident. I think um, Australia's in a better spot than they were when they picked up Peristine. Um and it doesn't feel like as big a money move as Heristein was. I think there was a lot of risk financially with Heristein and it just didn't play out. I don't think they're that risky with Tony. They had other options um, that would have been more expensive. Like Joe Montemurro would have been immense to get away from Arsenal because you've got to give up that Arsenal money. Um, Tony didn't have that. So I think there's this excitement with that. The team's in a better spot as well. They're just a stronger team. Um, than they were back then. So that's going to be interesting. And they've got a better schedule. You know, there's still um, that home-and-home series against the United States, which is phenomenally exciting, although I guess it's less exciting now than it was when it was (laughs) announced because when it was announced, you were like, oh, my God, Australia is going to play the United States in Australia. They're going to play the biggest team in the world in Australia. That hasn't – like, we haven't had the biggest team in the world since 2000. I was going to say it had
0: to be at the Olympics, Yeah
2: the Sydney Olympics and so that was huge and then you know now they're hosting the World Cup and it's like okay well that's a bigger draw right (laughs) like you're going to go to the World Cup if you're only going to go to one you're going to pick the World Cup over over the um, over friendly against the United States so that's still huge and I don't think it should be understated how big it is that the FFA has pulled US soccer to play a friendly in Australia Like, that is a long flight. Nobody plays friendlies in Australia. Nobody. Yeah. Like, it's such a big ask. Like, the teams we get to play friendlies in Australia are not big teams except for, you know, you might get another Asian team. Um, You know, like, the only friendly they played lately was the friendlies against Chile at the end of 2019. Um, They just don't get to play friendlies at home very often. Um, And when they do, they're not top ten teams in the world. So it's huge that the United States is willing to do home and home. Um, Cause I don't think the United States has ever travelled that kind of distance for a friendly. Um for just one friendly. I'm sure they'd tack on New Zealand, especially now that New Zealand's hosting the the Women's World Cup as well. But that was a huge get. And I think uh there's an exciting period, there's an exciting schedule coming up. So he's he signed through to the he signed for two World Cups basically. Um, no, sorry, two Olympics. He signed for two Olympics. He signed through to the, to the Paris Olympics, um, which is a lot of faith. Um, for a national team that's been through three managers in two and a half years, um, that's a lot of faith. Um, and I think it's a, honestly probably more faith shown on his part based on how quickly the turnaround's been happening. Um, but it's, a, it's an exciting schedule ahead. You know, they've got the Olympics next year, which is exciting, Um, but they probably have a real shot of meddling in, Um, you know, then on to the Asian Cup the year after that, then a whole World Cup and then an Olympics in Paris. Um, That's a great schedule. Um, It's a lot. It's going to be a big four years, and I hope that Tony can manage that um, because that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to manage those things, you know, these – These players now are playing a lot more games than they used to. You know, back in Tom Somati's days, even with their club commitments, they'd maybe be playing 40 games a year tops. Now we're talking 60, 70 games a year. Um, And there's going to be an expectation that there's going to be a lot of friendlies to prepare them for hosting the World Cup. And I mentioned that there's going to be teams lining up to play the Matildas in Australia with Australia hosting the World Cup. Um sort of interesting yeah, to see
0: because, how he handles that yeah it, it's like we saw before 2019 right a lot of people arranging for uh, friendlies on European soil right because you want to get the feel of those venues those fields but also that, that trip right traveling from wherever you're based to okay the, the travel feels like this or the cuisine is like this or the humidity or the altitude or the temperature whatever you know um, well, I think it's, it's,
2: it's, it's, going it's going to be so important path. for Australia because for all the Europeans and the North Americans, the season's going to be backwards, um, and that's going to be a big shift. Um, it, it's laughable, but I'll, I'll, I still remember landing in Texas um, 10, almost 11 years ago now, and um, thinking how cold it was because I left Australia and it was 105, and I landed in Texas <laughs> and it was 35. Um, and I didn't have a jacket in my carry on, uh, (laughs) that matters, you know, it it takes time to get used to that. And so that's going to be a, a shock to the system for the first few days. Um, and then yeah, the travel, it's difficult. Like not many people make that trip. Um, it's a difficult trip. It really is. I don't care. Like, will a lot of these teams be flying business class? Sure. Um, but a lot of them won't. Uh, yeah,
0: not everybody. It's not. It's not like quite like not everybody's got that football. budget.
2: And so you know they'll have to fly. Uh, they'll have to fly economy, and it's a long flight from wherever you're coming. Even the Asian teams, it's going to be a long flight. Um, and that's difficult, and it's going to be hard. My biggest tip to all the teams coming is get there earlier than you think you need to. Um, <laughs> I think. I think we'll see teams arriving for this World Cup quicker than ever before like I don't think we'll see you know teams showing up a week before the tournament I don't think that's going to happen like it often does I think we're going to see teams arriving several weeks before the tournament so they have time to get over the jet lag and get used to everything um, but it's such an exciting time I think for, for Australian football and especially for Australian women's football with promises of development and money from the government because now they're hosting the tournament um, there's a lot of pressure that's going to go with that, um, and I'm sure Tony's very aware of how much pressure there's going to be um, for success. Uh, but it's a phenomenal opportunity, and it's just it's like it's the kind of stuff I feel like you dream of as a manager um, to be managing the team that's hosting the World Cup, and and with all the pressure that's going to come with that, and there's a there's just a huge level of expectation. On this matilda side that maybe shouldn't be there maybe it's too like maybe it's over over the top you know if you look at australia's record the expectations that fans in australia have for this team do not match that record at all um people are expecting australia to win things um and maybe the best like the best shot they're going to have is the 2022 asian cup because that's the one thing on this list they've actually won before but it's hard to pass up a Winners World Cup at home with the strength of the squad um, as an opportunity. And I think if Tony can get it right, there's a real chance he'll win his third World Cup medal. Um, but it's, it's a big ask. It's a lot of pressure. Um, and I don't think many people know how well he can handle that. Um, we well, I, we'll I think he's we'll done that at see. club level. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's great. Yeah. It's exciting to get to see. You know, he's got going to be a really interesting tournament the the Olympics obviously next year in Tokyo um, the Women's Asian Cup uh, I don't know if people know this it's in India in 2022 um, which is really exciting because India um, obviously not the first name you think of when you think of Asian women's football but they have really developed and invested in that team and I think they really could um, they really could become uh, a force in in Asian football, if they if they really stuck to it and really did a good job, so it's exciting. India is going to be hosting the tournament, so they qualified for the tournament, and that's really exciting. Um,
0: but let's let's we'll talk about uh, let us finish up with with W League because mm-hmm. um, you know normally it's a mid fall to mid spring at least for the U.S. calendar um, season, but you know right right now everything's a big question mark. So so what do we know about and the next W League season.
2: Yeah, uh, that's basically everything we know about the W League season. It's a big question mark. Um, yeah, we have uh, Australia has state based restrictions on travel right now. So, Western Australia, you can't leave, you can leave, but you can't come back. Um, Victoria, you can't leave or come or enter. Um, so, you're really stuck with um, South Australia. New South Wales and Queensland in terms of places that states that impact W League. So uh West Australia's Perth Glory, so they would have to play entirely outside of Perth. Um the two Melbourne sides are Victoria, so you can't they would have to play outside of Victoria. Um and then you've got yeah, the New South Wales side, so right now that's Western Sydney, Sydney, Newcastle, and then Brisbane in um in Queensland. So that makes it tricky. Um, the only reason the W League last year got finished um, is because it happened so quickly that they were able to sneak it in before all the right. restrictions happened um, right. and it was very much a dear God, we've got to get this done and um, and they, and they were already all
0: in Melbourne, right like nobody had to travel because all the both yeah, semifinals both were semifinals
2: Melbourne. were already in Melbourne, and it was before the restrictions in Melbourne got real bad, so they were like, we've got to knock it out now because we don't know what's going to happen, and it'll be like cold. Um, because on the men's side in the A League, um, they had to—they tried to sneak the two Melbourne men's sides. So again, Victorian City. They tried to sneak them over the border. Sorry, three men's sides because it's Western United now. Uh, tried to sneak them over the Victorian border uh, before midnight, and they failed, uh, which is hilarious. I don't know how you don't. Anyway, I don't know how you fail to do that. It's not that big a place. Um, <laughs> yeah. They tried to sneak them over the border and completely failed, and then they were locked down for two more weeks. Um, and that could have easily been the whole W League season done um, had they not have already finished it. So it's, it's tough to know how that season's going to play out. Um, we don't have a start date for anything in Australia right now, so the, the A League also doesn't have a start date. There's a lot of talk in Australia right now of switching to a winter season for the men, which would presumably switch the women as well, Um, although it doesn't have to, uh, I would imagine it would, Uh, and so that would be a really interesting switch um, because right now the W League is in summer, uh, which means it lines up with Europe, um, which was kind of the idea when they launched the A League, was it would be good for the broadcasters if you play it in summer, because then you could have games all day, because you could have the the A-League, W-League games during the day and the evening. And then the middle of the night, you switch to Europe and you have the European games. And if you timed it right, you could back it. Um, that may not be so necessary now because now the broadcaster doesn't do everything. Um, and then on top of that, the quality is probably going to be better. It's really hard to play uh, soccer in Australia in summer. Um, I don't need to tell you this. You cover the Houston Dash. Um, it's difficult to play soccer in summer in Houston. Um, just like it's difficult to play soccer in summer in Qatar, and that's why we moved the whole World Cup. Um, it's difficult. It's a tough place to play, especially Perth. It's really hot there. Perth and Adelaide and there, are
0: so hot. And there's, there, there's no home advantage, right? Like, there's just... It, it just makes it's it just tougher for teams. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Melbourne maybe, but it gets hot in Melbourne. Um, like, there's just, it's just a tough place anywhere. Wherever you're playing in Australia, it's going to be tough. Um, maybe Perth have a bit of an advantage because they it's hotter than in Sydney or Melbourne, but it's just hot everywhere. And, you know, you're asking players to do that. when you could just have them play in winter. Um, but the other reason we play in summer is because of all the other sports. Um, the rugby codes and Australian rules football, they play in winter. And so the idea is to give clear airspace um, for soccer. But I don't think that's as relevant anymore. Um, and wouldn't we be better served by having a better quality? Wouldn't a better quality product be better to compete with these other sports um, rather than putting out a subpar product because it's so hot and the weather's bad and it's difficult um, and especially for the W League, it's a problem because a lot of the W League games happen at lunchtime, middle of the, middle of the day, um, for broadcasting. So they can have the W League game transition into an A League game, transition into another A League game, and so on. So a lot of the W League games happen during the day. The The grand final uh, two years ago that I was at was played at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, it's hot. It's really hot in Australia in January at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, so... You know, and I'm sure the players, you know, they're professionals. They can manage it. But I know um, one of the players from Perth Glory years ago, when they were talking about playing the Men's World Cup in Qatar, said, well, I'd rather play in Qatar in summer than Perth. Um, you know, I've, I've done both and I'd rather do that. Uh, so, you know, I think um, one of the U.S. women's team players said it about Houston. They'd rather play in Qatar than play in Houston in summer. Um,
0: so it's, <laughs> yeah, that that's dry versus humidity. But anyway, we're getting we're getting way we're getting yeah, exactly. way the weeds it's, on that. It's, it's a really Online.
2: interesting thing to see if we change it, but we we have no idea. We don't know when the 2021 season is going to start. We don't even know if there will be a 2021 season. A lot of this is going to depend on on the government um, and what they say. Um, obviously, you know, COVID affected everything. Australia is doing much better than we are here in the United States. Um, but um, Australia is also taking it much more seriously than uh, than we are in the United States. You know, we're both sitting in Florida right now, and right. you know the governor the governor of Florida has just been like, "Yeah, everything back to normal, uh, no restrictions on anything," um, which is insane. But that's what he's done. Um, in yeah. Australia, it's very much, a, "Oh no, 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 no," uh, um, and it probably won't be like international travels basically completely shut down to Australia. Um, so
0: when when do you is, think um, you know we might see the Matildas have have their next fixture? Do you think that will probably not be till the March the March window
2: or later? It, it might be even later, honestly. Um, I, I think they could play in March in Europe because that's where most of the team is anyway. Um, right. So I think you could arrange a friendly in March, play right. it in London. Um, you know, which isn't unusual. The the Socceroos have played plenty of times at Craven Cottage. Uh, which is Fulham's home ground. Um, So there's a relationship there. I don't think any European association would begrudge Australia playing a home game in their place, given the situation. Um, But it's difficult and can, and not everybody's going to be able to make it. Like that's just the reality. Um, I think you could play, you could see them play maybe a March window friendly in Europe. Um, but then I think there's a clash there with European qualifying and things like that. So that's tricky. Um, beyond that, the reality is that Australia, um, while their COVID cases have been low, they take it very seriously. And so I think it's going to be a long time before Australia gets back to normal. Um, selfishly, I hope it's before the northern summer, because I have a honeymoon in Australia in July. Um, and my sister's (laughs) getting married, and I would really like to go to both of those things. Um, And I I think it will. Like, I'm hopeful that first quarter or early second quarter next year, Australia gets more travel open up. But right now it's hard. And, you know, a lot of Aussies feel, a lot of Aussies living overseas feel pretty abandoned by the Australian government because it's so difficult for them to get home. For those that can get home, it's uh, several, you know, up to ten thousand dollars to fly home. Then you have got to be in quarantine for two weeks that you have to.
0: Well, and that, that's why it's so great that the Matildas, most of them, are in Europe. And like you said, they could very likely have a couple. That's what
2: makes in it Europe. possible, uh, right? You yeah. can play with those players around. So that that's the only way I can see a game getting off the ground is a European props. game.
0: Yeah. So, so fingers crossed, we can we can see some some Matildas on the field in early 2020, 20, 2021. Um, and I want to say thanks, Chris, for for taking the time to talk about the new coach of the Australia women's national team.
2: Yeah, always happy. Always always love talking about the uh, the Matildas with you, and really excited for what's going to be a really exciting uh few years for the Matildas.
0: All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. Just three weekends left of the End of Cell Fall Series. And, of course, by the time you're listening to this, one of those weekends will already be in progress. Of course, one game per weekend is available on broadcast TV, um, either CBS Sports or CBS in the USA and Canada. Um, Everything else will be on CBS All Access or Twitch in the U.S. And for fans outside of the USA and Canada, every game is streamed live on Twitch. Uh, Note that I've linked the Verizon Community Shield standings to KeeperNotes.com. Just click on the WOSO Nerd Links page so you can see the standings, tiebreakers, other fun uh, WOSO Nerd resources linked to that page, including... Um, all the, the rosters by club right now, including players signed to short-term contracts for the fall series. Um, just try to, I try to keep on top of, you know, players being signed With that, if you see an error or have a question, don't hesitate to email me keeper at keepernotes.com. And if you need more content, I don't have any more content to give you, but there's a lot of great content providers for women's soccer out there, especially in this country. You've got Equalizer Soccer, they have their subscription service. They have a lot of free content, but if you sign up for Equalizer Extra, which I highly recommend, you can get even more content. There's also the Nine newsletter, and that's IX like Roman Numeral 9. Um, they've got daily newsletters for all the women's sports and the Monday newsletter is soccer. There's also Justhersports.com um, run by a former Stanford soccer player. So if you're looking for more content, there's plenty plenty of it out there. And last but not least, vote, vote, vote. Um, I know a lot of states have registration deadlines coming up. Make sure you are registered to vote. Election Day, first Tuesday in November this year. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. I want to give a big shout out, of course, to Icarus FC for their sponsorship. If you're tired of the same old uniforms and cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas and you need a completely custom kit for your youth club, your Sunday rec squad, your indoor team, whatever, check out IcarusFC.com. And as always, big thanks to the Beautiful Game Network for hosting and to Sean, my producer, for making this podcast possible. But now she's anybody's girl You know she's anybody's girl